Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hell yeah, controlled substances. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Jane Poston, ProPublica's Dara Lind. I wanted to talk about, um, Dara recently published a big <laughs> investigative piece. Yeah, um, the, the thing about uh, the, the difference between being at ProPublica and being at Vox.com is that now when I publish a piece, it's an event as opposed to just like a weekday. It's a slower... <laughs> metabolism. <laughs> so I was like, oh, we should we should talk about Dara's big piece she's been working on. Uh, so I, I arranged that. Then, then I actually read it, and it's it's too depressing. It's, <laughs> yes. yes. It's, it is not exactly a heartwarming and uplifting piece, this is although it does actually have a happy ending, which is one of the things about um, investigative journalism, or at least uh, – using uh, one of the things about kind of writing about immigration policy in the Trump era is that I constantly have this dynamic when reporting out pieces where whenever anything good happens to someone I am following, I have to have a conversation with myself and or my editor along the lines of, is this still a representative story? Because many stories don't have happy endings. And if not, like... You know, is that so? So it creates this weird perverse incentive, right? right? Where you end up rooting against good things to happen to people who you, you know, have interacted with and may care about because it wouldn't make. What is this about? As we listeners know, because it's been kind of an axe that I've been grinding, that certain other folks in kind of immigration world have been grinding for the last year, uh, the Trump administration has put a lot of effort into. Instead of taking in asylum seekers when they arrive in the U.S. and keeping them in custody or letting them, you know, be released into the community while they wait for their asylum cases, they've found various ways to kind of just get them out of the U.S. as quickly as possible. The best established one of these is known as the Remain in Mexico program. It's officially called the Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP. And it means that people do have asylum cases in the U.S., but they are sent to sent over the border to Mexico uh, while they wait for those asylum cases. Now, these aren't Mexican asylum seekers. These are mostly Central American, but also other Latin American migrants, now even Brazilians who don't necessarily even speak Spanish, uh, are being, you know, something on the level of 50,000, although no count is super consistent on this. People have been sent over the last year to wait. Um, More recently, they've started piloting things that don't actually give people full asylum cases in the U.S. system at all. 
some pilots that just deport people, like they give them expedited review and then deport them quickly. And more recently, just sending people who are from Honduras and El Salvador to Guatemala to ask for asylum okay, there. So the- now, the thing about all of these is the decision about who goes where, whether somebody stays in the U.S., goes to Guatemala, goes to Mexico, that's entirely up to Border Patrol. And there are— And that are- can differ even where you yes. are at Border One of the things you get yeah. into in your story, which, just to give everyone, we'll put it in the show notes, but it's called Women to One Side, Men to the Other, How the Border Patrol's New Powers and Old Carelessness Separated a Family. But one thing you, you mentioned briefly is that if you are an LGBTQ asylum seeker and you go to El Paso versus San yeah. Francisco, you may have an entirely different experience of right. Border Patrol. Right. And border so Patrol is given be... these like very vague, like maybe you should consider not sending people to Mexico yeah. if they're in these cir- circumstances. But they're very clear that it is up to individual offers to uh, officers to make that decision. And, and these so... officers have likely not received any training about how to recognize yeah. threats or how what asylum seekers should or could look like. Right. And so I think one of the things that you did really well in the story, which I strongly encourage everyone to read, is just how shambles panda this <laughs> all is. Like, just yes. abject. Yeah. Just in terms of, like, oh, we didn't write down who, you know, that this child was this person's son or this yep. person's child. And so we have no idea. We don't know where people are supposed to be. It's not even, like, mistakes. It's just, like, errors. Right, right. It's the 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 folks, the, the kind of family that's referred to in the headline that I was following for this story, I, um, I was down in El Paso Juarez in September and, you know, I was talking to a lawyer and she mentioned that she'd actually been working with someone who I'd spoken to in the Bay Area and that they were working on an, a Remain in Mexico case, which didn't make a whole lot of sense because the Bay Area is not close to the border. But what became clear was that he, the lawyer in the Bay Area was representing the mother and had reached out to this lawyer in Texas to find the father of the family because the father and son had been sent back to Mexico under the Remain in Mexico program. The family had come together, uh, or at least, you know, as far as we knew at that point, they were they were saying that they had come together and there wasn't any evidence otherwise. But they had been told to get on separate buses when they got apprehended. They got taken to the same Border Patrol station, but they got taken separately. So they got put into processing separately, and that was it. And one of them got released into the U.S. and the and you know that one what the mother and and her you know twenty month old daughter, their twenty month old daughter got allowed to go to the U.S. But the father and six year old son, because they'd been put on the bus with the men, uh, ended up separated from them and got sent back to to Juarez and had at that point been there for nearly four months. Ultimately, as I was following this family through after a bunch of hoops to jump through and attempts to get them reunited that didn't work. Uh, ultimately, Border Patrol kind of decided that they were going to take them out of the Remain in Mexico program and allow them to reunite. But that happened as suddenly and unaccountably as the separation to begin with. Uh, so I was able to actually, you know, go with them as the family reunited for the first time in four months. But it had been, it wasn't, it wasn't the result of, oh, you know, we held the system accountable and they did what they were supposed to do. It was this power that was exercised to separate the family without any consequences was then able to reunite the family without any consequences. So it's a bit of a tricky subject for an investigative piece because 
in a way, it's writing about kind of the absence of processes or of anything written down. And, you know, you do have to kind of uh, prove the, you know, I, I I had to kind of prove the negative that there wasn't any reason that this family would have been separated in processing, which I ultimately was able to do. But we don't know how many of these there are. There is no reason to believe that this family would have been reunited if the lawyer hadn't been essentially, you know, hadn't hadn't emailed a bunch of CBP lawyers and kind of leadership at the port of entry in Juarez in saying, this is a mistake and you need to fix this uh, because otherwise we're going to start escalating. It's just, we have no way of knowing whether this is something that happens all the time, whether it's something that they're taking any more care with now that they're, they could be sending people to Guatemala, or if this is just a reflection of a madness that, you know, exists or, and a carelessness that continues to exist even as Border Patrol agents aren't as overwhelmed as they were in summer last year. And part of the the, the story here is that a certain kind of decision-making function has been pushed sort of downstream onto the Border Patrol that they didn't traditionally exercise, right? I mean, they would be there at the border uh, apprehending people who were sneaking across, and then people who made asylum claims, they would hand off, right, to ICE was in charge of detaining or not Mm -hmm. people, and there's a there are asylum officers who were part of USCIS, Mm -hmm. and there is an immigration court system. Right. right. So there were like various decision-making nodes, but like the border patrol was like a like like a permeable barrier at at the right. border, their, right? That it's their like purpose. if they if they caught you and you like your bag was full of drugs, yes. like they would arrest you because that's a crime. And if they got you and you were making an asylum claim, you had the credible fear hearing. Right. But even then you were it was gonna be, you know, the You may recall from last summer when there was all of the outrage about conditions in Border Patrol custody that Border Patrol sees its job as getting people out of its custody as quickly as possible, generally sending them to ICE. And so even though they did have a certain initial paperwork function, ICE was ultimately, A, making the the decisions Mm -hmm. about, like, who should be released and who should be detained, and B— it was kind of a second step to catch any carelessness that had happened in Border Patrol processing. Mm-hmm. Paperwork is not generally considered to be something that Border Patrol takes as a particularly important and awesome and worthwhile part of its job. Clearly. Sure. And, Clearly. Um, no, but I mean, they're, and, and, you know, they're, I, they're, I had, they're cops, right? right? They're not— Yeah, something that didn't make it into the piece, but I spoke to a, someone who's currently in the government who's, who's worked with Border Patrol, uh, and, you know, they said they don't— understand that what they write on the forms actually affects somebody's case down the road. They just think of it as like, it's a drop-down menu, you get it done to get it done. Uh And there have been lots and lots, there's lots and lots and lots of evidence of Border Patrol agents just kind of copying and pasting from one thing to another. You'll have these, you'll have these obviously absurd results, like in one case, a, uh, three-year-old child was marked on the form as saying that they came to the U.S. to work um, (laughs) because that's just what had been copied and pasted. Mm -hmm. So, but when you were being sent to ICE custody as quickly as possible, ICE would be able to catch that or you'd have your initial asylum screening interview and the asylum officer would be able to catch that. Right now, Border Patrol, in addition to having this 
added power to decide, do people go to Mexico? Do they go to Guatemala? Do they go into one of these expedited review programs? They also have, they're working without a net on the paperwork side, and there's no indication whatsoever that there's any more care being taken with paperwork. As a matter of fact, uh, an internal review of the Remain in Mexico program, which got leaked to BuzzFeed in part late last year, said that they didn't even have standardized forms for what happened when they sent people back to Mexico. And, like, they rolled this program out very gradually. It was at one location, and then they'd send it to another location. So what appears to have been the case is different parts of the border were arranging different forms on their own rather than any kind of, oh, this is how we've been doing it over in San Ysidro. Oh, this, you know, so it's just... There's no indication that this is happening in a way that not only uh, makes it clear to Border Patrol agents that what they're doing is now much more serious and has greater consequences, but that it's not being done in a way you would roll out a policy. It's just being done in a way you would kind of do it. You would you would roll out a new field tactic and give total discretion to the field agents to impose that tactic. And then, obviously, so then some of the the secondary context is that. The message from the top about this all is not, well, we need to do a really good job of correctly sorting people into destinations that will be safe for them and safeguard their their rights, right? I mean, they are the, the, the Trump administration is trying to do things that will pass judicial scrutiny, but like the objective here is to make it so that people don't come make asylum claims in the United States, right? And like and like people understand that, right? Like we're not idiots here on this podcast and I assume they also aren't at the border patrol, right? That like what the bosses are asking them to do is make people not want to come here, right? So like it's not it's not like going to be the end of your career as, you know, the shift supervisor at one particular border station if, like, there's a mess up and something sad happens to a family. Like, what's going to be a problem for you is if, like, you get the reputation as, like, you definitely want to come to this guy's sector of the border because he's being generous, right? right? Like, that's not, like, the the goal here is not to treat people nicely. Yes, they're walking a difficult line because you don't, you know, as much of a problem as it is that this that decisions about whether you get to stay in the U.S. and make an asylum claim or not are not at all based in what is the asylum claim you're ultimately going to make. Like the family in this story to this day has never actually had the chance to explain to an official of the United States government why they left Honduras. Uh-huh. Um it's it's just not it's that's not part of the triage process and that sounds extremely arbitrary but on the other hand there is a process that exists for determining whether someone has a good enough claim that they should be able to make it in full and that's the process that the Trump administration is currently abrogating so you can kind of understand you know what they're they're saying that all of these strategies uh, do a good job of you know that they make it easier to hear legitimate asylum claims by streamlining non-legitimate ones which is slightly double talk because of course they're not making that decision. They're just kind of assuming that if you are willing to jump through all these hoops, you must have a better claim or we must be able to just hear it more efficiently. What it means is that they're kind of making these, uh, they're, they're just 
they have to just flatly assert that there is absolutely no difference between being sent to Mexico and given a court date in the U.S. that you're, like, shipped through the port for. You know, you have to show up to the port at Juarez at, like, 4.30 in the morning or whatever because your hearing's at 8.30 and, you know, it's going to take several hours to get through. Um, that there's no difference between that and being in the U.S., able to kind of go find legal help. Uh, and th- that's, I mean, that's flatly everything we've seen about the way that these court hearings are working is that they are, in fact, totally different, that dockets are overloaded all the time, that there's very, that you really don't get any access to lawyers when you're in the U.S. And when you're in Mexico, lawyers aren't willing to go or don't want to take these cases because they're being so expedited and rushed through. They're going to some of the judges in the system that have the, that already have like the lowest approval ratings or increasingly they're just kind of teleconferencing in judges from elsewhere. Uh, The hearings aren't open to the public. And so, You know, you have the rhetorical, well, we're not making decisions at the beginning of the process because ultimately they'll get the chance to make their asylum claim. And then the in-practice fact that this decision by Border Patrol at the beginning of the process ends up having massive implications for whether or not you're ultimately able to stay in the U.S. And that is not at all to say anything of, like, the people getting sent to Guatemala who don't get to make claims at all. Well, so, okay, here, I I think we should should draw some distinctions here and and help people understand, right? So set Guatemala aside. Yeah, right? fair, fair. Okay, so you're going to make an asylum claim. Yes. And part of the Trump administration's concern about this whole thing is that people come with no regard for their prospects of prevailing at an asylum hearing, yes. that what they really want is just to be released into the interior of the United States pending a hearing uh, because then they can work, yes. do whatever, connect with extended family, blah, 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 blah. Um, So remain in Mexico is supposed to solve, allegedly solve that incentive mismatch, right? That, That remaining in Mexico by design is like not that great. So you would only want to do it if you thought you would really prevail at your asylum hearing. Because the goal is to get to the United States. And yes. under Remain in Mexico, the only way to get to the United States is to win at your asylum hearing. Whereas under parole, yes. you get some time in the U.S., you might just skip out. It, Although, th- fun fact, the few people who have been given, who have, whose asylum claims have been approved by an immigration judge via the Remain in Mexico program, in at least some of those cases, they have been sent back to Mexico because the government has said, we're going to appeal this. Right. So, but, in theory, sure. that is the only way to get through into the U.S. In practice, it is not a guarantee. But but then what, what you're saying is that your actual prospects of prevailing at the asylum hearing are themselves deeply impact by whether you are able to push that case from inside the U.S. where we have American immigration lawyers, or if you're in Mexico, where uh, by definition, (laughs) if you're an American attorney, uh, expert in dealing with the American immigration court process, like you're not going to be in Mexico. Right, right. And, you know, there always has been, and I think it's because immigration law is generally federal law, I think that this can be a little bit tricky for people to wrap their heads around, but there is already a certain amount of geographic variation in how likely you are to get your asylum claim approved. There's this weird system where jurisprudence is like simultaneously set by the immigration court system, which uh, if you're a Weeds listener, you'll remember is under the Department of Justice. So it's not a 
fully independent court system, but also some jurisprudence is set through federal courts. And so in like the Ninth Circuit, they the precedent says it's a little bit easier to make an asylum claim based on, say, being a member of a family that's being targeted than it is in the Fifth Circuit. Uh, so the, the Fifth Circuit of, is Texas. The Fifth Circuit does include Texas. And the yes. Ninth Circuit is it's California. California. Yeah. You know, that kind of already did exist to a certain extent. Some judges were more lenient than others. Some cities have more pro bono immigration lawyers than others. Very quickly, because that was something I actually wanted to get talk about is just the differing understandings of what you can receive asylum for. (laughs) Something that you've talked about (laughs) is how asylum seekers who are fleeing violence coming from their government mm-hmm. are considered very differently from say LGBT people who are seeking uh who may not be being persecuted by the government writ large but everyone around them or in this particular story that you're talking about you know, this is a couple who's being threatened by gang violence right and you know David one of the people you talked to um you know he was shot twice yep. his uncle and his sister were murdered and uh, you know so he is ex- experiencing violence coming from like a specific group of people. Right. And, but you've talked before about how the current administration has very differing views on whether or not that constitutes a a true threat. Right. I mean, it's it is a fundamental truth of asylum law that there are people who are absolutely convinced they will be killed in their home countries and might be right and do not nonetheless qualify for asylum. The question is, at what point does the danger that you are facing fall into the category of persecution. Remember that uh, asylum law as we know it is really rooted in the response to the Holocaust. And so there's this idea that the most inescapable persecution is based on a group identity, probably an immutable group identity, and that it's coming from the government. And so the text of actual asylum law says that you can be persecuted based on one of five things, race, nationality, political opinion, religion, or membership in a particular social group. One of these things is not like the others. Obviously, particular social group doesn't have the same kind of like readily obvious meaning. And so a lot of this kind of weird jurisprudence that varies by jurisdiction to jurisdiction depends on how do you define a particular social group and what counts as being targeted based on that versus just like you come from a shitty place, your life kind of sucks, you're fleeing generalized violence, or you're fleeing a personal vendetta. Like those two things definitely don't count as asylum or definitely don't count for asylum. Some kind of group-based targeting in the middle does. So this particular case, this this family's case was really, it's a bubble case under current asylum law because they definitely are under threat and the entire family is definitely under threat, but they're not under threat from a government. The government, uh, they, you know, they tried to move to different places in Honduras and they didn't It didn't necessarily protect them. So there's an argument to be made that the government isn't sufficient to keep them from facing this. But, like, at what point do you say that they're persecuted based on being, based on, you know, the family as a whole is being targeted? And, you know, one of the kind of twists and turns in this story is that there was a precedent issued by Attorney General Barr last summer that said you can't make asylum claims based on your family is being targeted unless, like, everybody in your society knows who your family is. So unless it's, like, Kardashian-level fame, essentially, Mm -hmm. you don't get to say my family is a particular social group. That decision came down after this family had entered the U.S. and been separated 
And in theory, the mother of the family who was at that point living in the in San Jose could have put in an asylum application. The other like weird thing about this case is that they never bothered to file her paperwork with the court. So instead of having an like a, an appointed hearing with an immigration judge, she had to like apply proactively for asylum as if she'd like come in on a visa. But she could have filed that application before this decision came down, except that she had been separated from her husband or from her partner. And so in order to get him included on her asylum application, she had to wait until they could get married, which given that they were in two different countries was very difficult. So because of kind of that, you know, cascading chain and er, chain of cause and effect, ultimately by the time she filed her application, this new precedent had come down. And so the law under which her claim is being adjudicated is actually less favorable to her than it would have been if they'd been kept together to begin with. Okay, let, let's take a break because then I, I, I want to talk about that sort of big picture policy context. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This is very important because, I mean, different judges might rule differently, but I think it's pretty clear that the view of Bill Barr and the view of Chad Wolf and the view of their predecessors in, in those positions at Justice and Homeland Security is that it should not be the policy of the United States to accept Central Americans fleeing uh, MS-13 and uh, what's the other one? Barrio 18, there, there are a few, there are uh, just the Maras generally, sure. we'll but say. The, but, the, but the general phenomenon in which 
this family's case fits, right? Which is a person living in the Northern Triangle, their family comes to be targeted by the local hegemonic uh, criminal organization. And so they flee for their lives to the United States. Um, That like the, the powers that be don't think those people should be given asylum in the United States, right? Like that's what's, everything else that is happening in administration of asylum cases flows, I think, from that policy conclusion, right? That they think it would be bad if a because they believe that if if it was easy, right, right, to get asylum in the United States on the basis of I have a even if the fear for your life is completely bona fide, right? That there is in fact so many people who have perfectly bona fide fears of gang violence in Central America that if it was easy to get asylum on that basis, a lot of people would come, they would get asylum, and that that would be bad for the United States of America. Right. right? Well, so they, there's there's they, also they kind t- of the idea that like because it's not baked into the definition, it's not baked into traditional understandings of asylum that you get to claim asylum because you live in a failed state. Like the difference between I'm being targeted by gangs and my government can't protect me versus I just live under a government that's not capable of providing for my basic needs. Like the latter of those is not considered generally to allow you free reign to migrate anywhere else. Right. So it's like there's no dispute. Yeah. Legally speaking, there's this kind of like gang edge case, but like there's there's no dispute at all that like just because like you live in Chad and it's incredibly poor and there are no prospects for economic growth, like that is not a valid basis for asylum, right? Even though like it's terrible. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I, I, and I do think that's important because like the, this is such a heartbreaking story. Like I'm – sobbing reading about this kid who, you know, feels that he's been abandoned by his mother um, when really, you know, an arbitrary bureaucratic. When he was saying that, like, you know, you left me, mama, I'm just like, it's, well, especially because I think the thing that gets me about this that makes me just sit by myself and stare at a wall for a while is that we won't know what the ramifications of all of this are for years. And this is happening a lot. Like, this is not like, you you were talking about how you were unsure whether or not to tell this story because it ends relatively positively. But, <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I mean, relatively. Yeah. I and mean, I'm really stretching the definition of relative, but just the fact that, like, this is, for the horror of this story, this is a relatively optimistic outcome. And this is, you know, this is happening across the country, and it's happening to kids who have understandably no idea what's going on. And just the ramifications, the enormity of the ramifications is kind of overwhelming. Yeah, right. I mean, it can be a, this is like, to and to, to pull back the curtain a little bit again, like, it can be really hard to write that in explicitly because I'm talking about people who, I'm ta- I'm, I don't want to, just for the sake of of saying, well, bad things could happen, kind of overwrite, uh, you know, what I saw, which was a very happy reunion. And in conversations since with the family, they definitely, like, have concerns about their ability to stay in the U.S. long term. But, you know, there isn't, if I'm not hearing from the subjects of my story, a kind of, oh, yeah, you know, I still really kind of have this these lasting issues, I don't want to write that in. At the same time, you can't know what an experience this traumatic is going to produce 
in terms of like the long-term consequences or the things that they're not willing to open up to somebody who they don't know that well about. Um, and it, so it, it can just be, you know, I'm, I'm, I think that those of us who were following family separation when it was happening as a, as a kind of universal policy choice at the border in spring 2018, there was a lot of good public education going on there about the long-term consequences of trauma. But it's something that I think about a lot in any of these stories is the extremity of circumstances that people are being put through is itself the kind of thing that in other circumstances you could imagine being used as the basis for an asylum claim. Right. <laughs> but I I think this story, it's emblematic of what conservatives fear about liberals, right? Which is that this is so sympathetic. It's so horrifying to read about this family and the situation they faced in Honduras and what they were put through by the American government. And, like, you can't—I can't help but sympathize with them and want them to have, like, a super happy— ending where they go live in San Jose and they take advantage of the booming labor market in the Bay Area and where the housing situation is like dismal by the standards Americans are accustomed to. But like actually like compared to Honduras, like it's great. And it becomes this like great American success story, right? And like that's what I want. That's the outcome that I, I want for these people. But then like the conservative on my shoulder, the like the mini Trump or or Border Patrol agent or, you know, Trump voting guy who I met a couple weeks ago and, and talked about this with is that like, look, there's billion, literally billions of people on the planet with very sad lives whose circumstances could be greatly improved by moving to the United States. And, like, what are you going to do, right? Like, the reason they don't all come move to the United States is that they're not allowed to. That treatment of people who try to move here without a valid visa is, in fact, not that good. And so even if your life is pretty bad in Cambodia or wherever, it's like it's not worth it, right? It's not worth it to, to try this. And if you try to generalize that, like, liberal sympathy that we feel for this family, you're going to end up with an unsustainable uh, process that crushes the system. And you have all these immigration lawyers running around. And, like, they're lawyers, right? And what lawyers do is they represent clients in cases. And so it's like it's not your job as an immigration lawyer to say, like, cosmically, what should our policy be to low-skill immigrants? And so, like, they're very tunnel vision on this. Like, it's not my job. It's not my job. But it's like you don't see, like, Democratic Party members of Congress introducing bills that are like the Open Borders Act of 2020 because we think it's sad that people can't all move here to the United States, right? But it's like that that, that I think that would be – I think that's a valid conservative point that it's like we need a a policy that has systematic choices and like a stable – equilibrium rather than treating each individual person in the most generous possible way if we're not actually prepared to to see through the consequences of what that would what that would mean that if there were if there were 122 people living in Honduras being targeted by gang violence like this it would be really easy to say like just just fucking let them come right but it's so many more people than that so i think that there are a couple i mean The thing about this is it's not like the U.S. doesn't have a way of 
of resolving this conflict. It mm-hmm. does. That's what the asylum process is for, mm-hmm. right? It's for determining who are the people who fit within this category of things that we have, through our legislative process, determined we want to protect people from. Now, that system is, you know, you can argue that it's overloaded and, and, and inefficient because overloaded. You can argue that it is is vulnerable to kind of the, like, catch-and-release concern of people absconding. You can make arguments like that. Instead of, well, the Trump administration has made some attempts to change the system so that they can just kind of hold people in custody for longer, which itself has access to council concerns. But, like, it is an attempt to use the legislative process to fix this problem. But in addition to that, the administration's current strategy is just we are going to use executive branch powers to root as many people out of that process as possible. And so, you know, one of the kind of twists and turns of border policy over the last year was that if this family had come like a couple of months later, they wouldn't have even been allowed to make asylum claims at all because in July, the Trump administration said, you aren't eligible for asylum if you aren't from Mexico and came through Mexico to cross into the U.S. Uh, So like there's that, you know, there's all of these dispersal programs. None of this is happening from the basis of there are legitimate claims and illegitimate claims and we want to sort out you know, which ones fall into the people, the kind of people who we've already agreed to protect, it's, well, we might as well throw up our hands and see, you know, and and just try to prevent as many, uh, try to make it as difficult as possible for people to kind of gain the legal right to stay in the U.S. based on having been in the U.S. That doesn't, that's not, I mean, it's, it's not only a series of kludges, it is exactly the same kind of choices being made based on individual circumstances, except instead of being the individual sympathetic circumstances of like, oh, your story makes me feel bad, they're the individual circumstances of, well, you happened to come to a station that has already promised to send 20 people to Guatemala today or that has promised to, to like, send people to Mexico or, well, we sent the women and children on the first bus and we have to make our Mexico numbers with the second bus. This is not to say that I know exactly that that's what happened, but it is to say that there is no actual triage process that's happening. And so this isn't, what we have isn't exactly this system that conservatives want. It's a system that conservatives can tolerate if it gets them to, or or that conservatives appear to be willing to tolerate because it gets them to a broader, you know, because they are more interested in people not being able to take advantage of the asylum system than they are in the kind of, like, negative error of worthy cases being turned away. Right. I think a lot of this really is, are you more tolerant of positive or negative error? And, you know, liberals tend to be okay with some people who might not ultimately deserve asylum getting to stay in the United States if it means that no one is getting sent back who might be killed. The thing is, the U.S. law is actually pretty clear about this. It You're supposed to be very intolerant of negative error on this. Uh, that's why the initial asylum screening is so generous. And so... Yes, it's true that that's to a certain extent a policy choice, but it's a policy choice that's kind of baked into the law, that you're really, really, really supposed to bend over backwards to ensure that no one is sent back to a country where they're going to be persecuted. All right. With that, let's take a break and talk about getting sick in Taiwan. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. 
But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. There's nothing I love better than a good um, empirical study that probably doesn't generalize that we can just <laughs> make wild <laughs> assertions about. Um, oh, gosh. And there's nothing I like better than using the methodology section to cast aspersions on conclusions like Matt's. Uh, it's great. So the title is Do Elections Make You Sick? It is by Hung Hao Chang and Chad Meyerhofer. And it says that, yes, elections do make you sick uh, in Taiwan. Um, and they look at healthcare. <laughs> yes, elections they, make Taiwanese people sick in Taiwan. At least. Um, they look at healthcare use uh, in, in Taiwan. Taiwan, unlike the United States, is one of these countries that has like specified this is the election time series. And so you could you can look at that window and they show that um, healthcare use and expenses go up by 19 percent uh, during that window. Um, those of us who listened to Sarah Cliff and Dylan Scott on the pod a few weeks ago know that Taiwan has a single payer type healthcare system with very, very low um, co-payments. Uh, so you you can show up whenever you feel like it. And people feel like showing up a lot more during election campaigns. Uh, also, Americans believe that this is happening to them because the election is stressful and making them crazy. So based on this Taiwan data, it's totally true. It's not all in your head. Or if it is in your head, uh, your psychological state is causing real physical health impacts. Right. Like, this is the wild thing about this Take study. Take it to the bank. Is they acknowledge that they're not looking at, like, purely psychological care. But based on the medical data that they have, they find suggestive evidence that it's not increasing mental health usage it's only increasing youth of it's only increasing usage of the healthcare system for like physical ailments which like yes there have some been of the way things more they, people getting the flu since it, right so, or like so. or like gastrointestinal <laughs> right Int- or like you know in in this paper they're talking about like gastrointestinal complaints like mm-hmm, the kind of things mm-hmm. that you could imagine being psychosomatic yeah. but in order to grant the premise of this paper you have to you have to like thread the needle of okay this Election-related stress is causing the kind of physical ailments that I would associate with mental distress. Right. But it's not, not causing mental health 
ailment. Which seems, I mean, that's a that's a tough. But Jay, diff- talk about what's been happening in our office. <sighs> we have been uh, victims. I have been a victim of the. I'm a survivor. I'm a survivor of the murder flu. Um, and I, so many other people. So many other people. And it genuinely, if you are sick, please stay wherever you are. Keep listening to this podcast and other podcasts on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Do not leave your home uh, because <laughs> it is, and because you won't want to, because you'll be lying in bed unable to physically watch television, just having the television on. Which is why you should be listening to The Weeds. Exactly. It actually was a really good time for podcasts. If I had had any of the mental acuity to listen to anything, I I, I did not at the time. But anyway, yeah, um, everyone's getting sick, and I think that... Pr- is it psychosomatic? I don't know. Did it make me feel like a human garbage can? Yes, it did. The other thing about this kind of compressed election schedule in Taiwan, and when we're talking about compressed, like— This study looks at presidential elections, which have a four-week campaign period, and mayoral elections, which have a one-week campaign period, which is crazy go nuts. Um, Wouldn't that be great? I I, I don't know if—I mean, I I almost worry that one week is probably too short for local elections in the U.S. because— you know, it's um, people have enough trouble figuring out who's running in local elections anyway. You would read maybe one article, right? Right. We could election. only re- we could only tape one podcast <laughs> for all of Taiwanese mayoral races. It would be so terrible. Anyway, because of that, they have, there's this idea that those that events during those campaigns are more intense. That like mass rallies in particular, like they they flag injuries as something that could be caused by these kind of like very intense mass rally. Right. Bernie politics. did this rally with a. Uh, with the the strokes, that's yesterday. not causing any right. injuries. No one. It's right. it's not two thousand three. Just a lot of like moody. <laughs> so the, it's not two thousand three. We've moved. The on. implication there is that even though we think of this U.S. campaign as being so stressful, and I think we really are in the throes of if you're particularly invested in Democratic Party politics, this is probably the part of the cycle that is going to be the worst for you because things are happening all the time and emotions are very heightened and the stakes are very heightened. But if it's a slog, it might actually be less acute in terms of the mental inflections. That's kind of the theory you know, of like, oh, this four-week campaign is going to cause a lot, a lot, a lot of things right. that are then kind of resolved after the campaign. The other thing that, you know, that, that's interesting about this is the American studies that they're comparing it to aren't actually studies. There there's some are some during the campaign studies, but there's also a lot of existing literature about how Americans responded to, in particular, the 2016 presidential election, showing a lot of, like, reports of higher stress, increased cortisol levels, that kind of thing. And it does strike me as interesting that if you're hypothesizing a higher degree of stress causing, you know, physical ailments during the campaign, that, like— that's not going to persist after the election. Like, presumably, some people, especially if you're looking at younger voters, which they are, who tend to support, as who they say tend to support the minority party in Taiwan, right. like, presumably, some of those people would also be distressed about the result of the election. And that's not something up that's turning up, something that's turning up in the data. And it's curious. It is. Indeed. Yeah. I don't know. I still buy it. <laughs> <laughs> Elections make you sick. 
It could be even worse, though, if people went to rally. Basically, don't participate in politics. Just stay home uh, behind your desk, <laughs> listening to podcasts, <laughs> maybe tweeting yep. occasionally about your favorite candidates. I kind mean, of performative politics. Yeah, yeah, that, exactly. that seems healthier. T- tweeting tweeting, and, and, and just, just expressing yourself is the really effective way to engage in politics. Don't come to meetings. Don't engage face-to-face. I was going to use a Marilyn Manson quote here, but you actually, like, out-darked even that. Yeah, this <laughs> wow, is— that's, it's all, no, I, I don't agree with any of that. Uh, get out, get out, do things. Or, right, uh, you know, just or do things. Just wash your hands, for the love of God. Phone just bank, wash your hands. text people, do things from the comfort of your home that's, that that's aren't going point. to get you injured. Or the, the murder flu. I want yeah. to do a pod uh, soon about phone banking and texting and the evidence on whether that does any good. Oh, yeah. I think it's, I think it's increasingly looks, looks bleak. Well, I guess we should probably wait for the uh, New Hampshire results. And it's see. true. We'll see what happens. Uh, maybe, but, maybe by the next podcast, we'll actually know who won the Iowa caucus. <laughs> no, we'll never know. I have written two different winners and losers from the Iowa caucuses article. Neither of them have run because we don't know what's happening. And it is making me physically ill. We're going to need to do a special instrumentation of that. Uh, but like the phone banking, right? Like imagine like you are sitting at home, relaxing, listening to The Weeds, your other favorite Vox Media podcast network shows, you know, a little p- pivot whatever, um, and then somebody just, like, phones you up, and they're like, hey, I'm a total stranger. I'd like to hassle you on behalf of a political candidate. Nobody wants that. All right, this is this is a separate episode for a separate <laughs> time with some actual poli-sci reading between okay, now and then. Okay, okay, we're going to wrap it up, wrap it up. Uh, thanks, guys. Uh, thanks so much. Um, everybody should, you know, read the actual article. It's really, uh, it's a great reporting, also it's heartbreaking, but you know, in a good way. It'll make you feel like you've done something <laughs> useful. Uh, thanks to Malachi Brodus, our engineer, Jackson Bierfeld, our editor. Uh, Jeff Geld is back as producer of the show. Hooray! Uh, we're really excited. Um, and Louise will be back on Friday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.